Let's do it. Let's How's it on. going, everybody? You've got the bottom up sales crew live with Kenny Vincent. So just introduce Kenny. Kenny is the global director of sales at ClickUp. Um, he started at ClickUp when the sales team was extremely small. I think five or fewer sellers when he first got started and has now scaled that team up to 150, um, 150 plus, which is a really difficult thing to do. And we just want to ask him about his experience building that team, watching ClickUp go from a largely self-serve product to uh, a bottom-up meets top-down motion. And uh, very excited to, to talk to him today and also want to reintroduce my co-hosts, uh, Mike Heller and Ryan Lipser. How are you guys doing? We were doing great. Excited to have Kenny on the show. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for setting this up, Mike. And Kenny, thanks for joining us. We're excited to talk to you. Awesome. Without further ado, let's introduce him. Kenny Vincent, how's it going, man? Thanks for joining us. Good. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate you guys inviting me to, to this uh, call-in uh, room. This is great. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Of course. You have had a really interesting experience scaling this team. I think when most sellers or sales leaders hear five sellers to 150 plus, it's very anxiety inducing. Mike and Ryan, do you feel the same way when you hear that type of speed? Absolutely terrifying. Yeah, that, 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 that seems very challenging, but I'm sure you've got some really interesting lessons from it that I'm excited to dive into. So Kenny, it begs the question, how did you get introduced to the ClickUp team initially? And, and how did you decide to join? I just, I'd love to hear about your early, uh, early days at the company. Yeah. Um, so I was introduced through um, a contact of mine at Craft Ventures, Brian Murray, who's uh, one of the GPs over there. I was in a position where I was just looking around and I saw that, um, you know, or I'd reached out to Brian, basically just asked him what his, the firm was up to, kind of what was in the portfolio. And he had mentioned that uh, there was a company called mm. ClickUp, asked if I had ever heard of it, said the CEO was uh, in, the, in the area looking for funding potentially for like an A round. And he's like, it's a productivity solution. Um, he goes, and these guys are based in San Diego and that they didn't have a lot of sales chops at the time. And he asked me if I would be interested since I was based in Orange County at the time. So I said, yeah, let me take a look. So I checked out the platform. It seemed pretty good at first. Um, and then I got introduced to Zeb directly and him and I had a phone call and within probably like two to three minutes, him and I had a really strong connection. So I think what he liked about my background was just like the, the hyper growth experience, but also just the, the, that bias to action, roll up your sleeves, get get involved, get dirty, you know, and, and have somebody with some experience that's actually been through that hyper growth phase and could kind of bring that tribal knowledge uh, to the company. So from there, the interview process was really short. It was just me and Zeb. And then I spoke to the now CBO chief business officer, Tommy Wang. Um, and that was basically it. And then I was, I was sent an offer. So it was really, 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 really quick. I think what sold me on ClickUp early was when I'd asked to see um, some of the metrics under the hood around the product side of things, specifically like, you know, just product adoption, signups, DAUs, MAUs, all that good stuff. That's usually what I'm looking for in terms of determining the overall health of a company, what the what the um, potential is there. And so um, right away, I mean, it was pretty clear. Like, I'll, you know, the one metric that I usually tell people that, um, you know, you, you know, lights people up is they're getting about 10,000 signups per day. And as soon as I saw that metric, I was like, okay, this thing is, this thing's ready to go. So uh, we talked a little bit about um, what their revenue goals were for the year, which were extremely aggressive, looking at kind of their, their lead flow and a few other things. And it, it just felt like a really strong fit. It felt like it was a good fit for me. I've worked in the productivity space for almost eight years prior 
Um, and they were hiring for a lot of the same type of roles and positions and profiles that I've worked with in the past. So it just seemed like a really strong fit across the board. And I think they felt the same way. How big was the company at the time? Like what was the state of ClickUp when you joined? Yep. So there were about 35 people. Um, they had not raised an A round. Um, and they were basically just, um, they were over indexed on support people. So I think they had like 10 or 12 support people. And then it was like five or six or seven engineers. Um, and then they had a couple of executives. It was like Tommy Zev and another gentleman named West who was like the COO. And then it was myself and three sales or three or four sales reps right around there. And no, no success, no rev ops, like no, nothing. That was it. They had just gotten an office space in, in the gas plant in San Diego. Um, and the office was just, you know, it was basically like a mess of desks. <laughs> there was no organization to it. It was just like, People were, uh, you know, people would just look like they were living there for days and then they go home for days. It was, it was pretty interesting because it was really at the front end of COVID or like the peak of COVID. And so it was during a time where it was very touchy to be in the office to begin with. So it was interesting. It was definitely uh, an interesting time there in the beginning. Kenny, hey, Kenny. I think when, right when you start, it, it's going to be very different than <clears throat> outside looking in, right? And I can imagine uh, with that kind of inbound demand, um the, the the product is getting insane adoption i'm curious kind of how you thought the early days were going to go before you start so maybe if you had some type of anticipated 30 60 90 and then what that actually looked like in reality once you uh officially started yeah so usually when i enter startups at this phase especially ones that had a healthy runway ahead of them in the sense that i knew we were closing in on an a round I also knew that um, they didn't have a lot of sales or revenue chops in the past. So I expected to be focused on like tooling process, uh, lead flow management, and then a little bit, and then um, a lot on culture. So I wasn't too worried about um, leads per se. I knew the leads were sort of there. It was more just about getting kind of our ducks in a row with some of the infrastructure uh, and some of the process. So when I went in there, um, you know, I was definitely playing you know, five roles at once. It was definitely, I was head of rev ops, head of sales recruiting, <laughs> head of sales management, managing all the managers or managing all the reps. Um, and then I was trying to run reporting and analytics to get an idea for like, what is this? Can we just build this machine out? So um, I think that once I got in there though, it was pretty apparent to me that we had a, we had a, a, a rush of leads. So leads was in a better than uh, average position, but our tooling was in a worse than average position. So we're working with like an older version of HubSpot that wasn't deployed properly. Uh, we didn't have an enrichment tool. Uh, we didn't have any sort of an AI calling solution such as a gong or a chorus. So it was really like just taking stock of like that existing tech stack and starting to find some of the top of the line stuff that we could bring in and start to integrate. I didn't have a team. So I had to go out and find consultants that could help me integrate these solutions externally. Um, and then you know, I was given, um, you know, like a two quarter headcount of an additional 30 reps. So we had to fill the pipeline with candidates while I was doing that. And then we were trying to swim up market. We were over indexed in the SMB space. We were trying to start to get into mid market and start closing mid market size accounts. So quite a few things going on at once. Uh, definitely was grinding, you know, 80, 100 hours a week <laughs> right, right from the get go. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, and I imagine even with 80 to 100 hours a week, you probably still couldn't do everything you wanted to do. Not even close. <laughs> How did you prioritize? Like, given you had, I'm sure, very ambitious revenue targets to hit, um, but then all these other kind of foundational um, elements of a sales org to build. How did you decide what to do and, and what to either not do or push off and, until later? It's Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's... Um, 
it was difficult to be honest with you. What I really realized super quickly is that I couldn't manage the team effectively. I couldn't do like multiple one-on-ones and really rich coaching sessions like that we all want to do. I yep. knew right out the gate that that just wasn't going to happen. So I really uh, worked really hard to foster a culture of ownership and accountability and bias to action and letting people know like, listen, this company is going to be a grand slam. The people who are going to make it here, the people that step it up and they put in the extra time and they send those emails and they really get stuck in on trying to do their best work that they've ever done in their career. And I really set that culture down and people loved it. They loved the challenge. And it took a lot off my plate with regards to day-to-day level management of the team and allowed me to focus on high impact process reporting and tooling. So we did a basically a rip and replace of Salesforce, for example, or of HubSpot. And I purchased Salesforce and implemented it. That was a high priority thing that we had to get in there because I needed an enterprise solution that we could scale. Because at that point, I knew we were going to be like 30 to 50 reps. And I was like, we need an enterprise solution that can scale past that point. So I had to get that in there, had to find some tools that were going to enhance the sales team, like course, like I said, and a few other solutions. And then uh, once we got through the tooling push, which was like my first quarter, first four months, it then became reporting and analytics. And we are high priority on that because we had the systems up and running. The numbers, we knew that we were closing lots of deals and we were exceeding our targets, but we didn't have a lot of the details of the secondary metrics. We didn't have, you know, pipe coverage metrics, like really basic metrics like that. We didn't have those. So we started to focus quite a bit on a lot of the reporting analytics after, after that. And, you know, we built out an analytics team at that point and started to, you know, identify what our data architecture was going to look like and how that was going to scale long term. So it was really always about high impact, focusing on what had the most impact and what were the biggest fires, to be completely honest with you? That's a lot. For, <laughs> yeah, for, for orchestrating tooling like that, um, I think it's really important to have an idea of some of the metrics that are going to be important down the road, right? Because with uh, so many organic signups that you've had, um, to think about what are some of the things that you're going to want to track and, and probably go after from a revenue perspective down the road, uh, all three of us have been at companies where systems didn't necessarily talk to each other super well. Mm-hmm. You can think mm-hmm. like CRMs not talking to like your proprietary database and uh, that can create uh, challenges down the road. So I'm curious kind of how you thought about that um, and maybe maybe how you had to iterate uh, to um, to make sure that you had like the right data to um, have insights and take action on it down the road. Yeah, it was um, a little bit of a process to go through and determine like what which metrics were right for us. Um, so when I got to the company, we were primarily focused on ARR, very classic metric to, to measure success. But as we kind of examined our deal cycles and the nature of how we grow revenue within accounts, we knew we could tell that it was multiple purchases typically. So this very traditional land and expand motion, which meant that IARR was probably a better determinant of success. So focusing on that incremental nature of growing the value of an account. Um, and we did that for, you know, for other North Star type of metrics, such as uh, pipeline or um, churn or retention. We kind of picked those key North Star metrics. And then we start to build those constellation of metrics around them, secondary metrics, third tier metrics, things that kind of help you understand performance. Uh, but once we honed in on, on a set of metrics that we thought represented the business, it was about creating a shared understanding. So we got buy-in from the executive team like Zeb. We got Zeb's buy-in. We got the analytics team buy-in. We got, you know, obviously revenue and sales buy-in. And we made sure that everybody understood, like, these are these are the targets for the company. These are This is how we define these metrics. And these are why these metrics are important to us. I'm interested I, in enterprise, like, product market fit. Because ClickUp 
the slogan is, you know, one tool to replace them all. So you have, there's so many different things you can do with ClickUp, so many different use cases. And I'm just curious in the early days, how it became apparent, what category you were going to be in for the enterprise sale. And I guess, I mean, couched in that is, do you find yourself selling in multiple categories or are you kind of in this, like, uh, I don't, I don't even want to say task management, but like, are people looking at you to replace Asana or compete against Asana? Are there other categories that you're in? I'm, I'm just curious about when enterprise product market fit started to take shape versus yeah. end user product market fit. And, and it yeah. might also be useful to, to ground the conversation in, in what, what ClickUp does. Um, and maybe like what it did when you started, which I imagine wasn't yet one tool to replace them all and kind of how it got to, to, to where it is now. Yeah, so the the backstory here with, with the product is that uh, Zeb is a serial entrepreneur. He had multiple companies. He sold one uh, prior. Um, and in the process of owning multiple companies and trying to go in that route, um, he was basically toggling between nine tabs to get his, get his job done, right? Like the engineering team only wanted to use Jira. The marketing team only wanted to use Asana. So they basically baked an in-house solution that took all the best features from the entire productivity space and just jammed it into one solution. And that's how the product was born. During the interview process with Zeb, when I was reviewing the platform, my aha moment is when I looked at the views feature specifically. So you can take the same static um, data or assets and you can change the product to look like Asana or you can make it look like Airtable or you can make it look like Jira and yet everything's still connected. So mm. it can actually serve the needs of all the different lines of business, all the pockets, all the projects that you're working on. It can be under one roof. You don't have to have multiple solutions. So you can make it look however the user makes it want to feel. So that was really my aha moment with it. And it's got a really good wall-to-wall -wall play as a result. That's why I thought this company was going to make it. I was like, we definitely can do what the other, if you take a look at the top five productivity solutions, we can do what they all can do. We took all of their best features and we just put them into, into one comprehensive platform. With regards to the enterprise strategy, um, it's actually still in play a little bit. I think when we got here, the first focus was enterprise readiness as opposed to feature development and platform development. So getting our SOC2 built out, making sure that we had uh, proper security protocol, making sure that we had um, you know data retention and redundancy policies that served the different needs of the different geos around the world. So EMEA is completely different than obviously what US wants. So that was sort of the main focus out the gate. Um, in terms of product market fit within the enterprise space, we're definitely seeing traditional land expand with going with one large pocket of users and then going to a, to a line of business and then going horizontal into multiple lines of businesses at once. So is the mental model, like if, if I'm an AE at ClickUp, is the first step diagnosing, if, if there's a warm lead or an inbound lead, you have to diagnose, okay, is this a Asana competition that's a different type of tools as an air table competition i guess how many iterations of, of those possibilities are there for ClickUp? do you find yourself competing in like five different categories or is it usually task management and kind of expand from there i'm just curious the diagnosing phase of a discovery for your aes yeah it's definitely most of the productivity space as a whole so it's definitely project management task management it can be workflow management it can be streamlining it could be collaboration and communication so we we definitely have all those features built into the platform. It's really just a complex, you know, song and dance with our customers to try to actually um, capture all the different use cases. Get the platform is so customizable and so and so flexible. Every single deal that we get on is definitely highly competitive. The space is competitive, as you guys know, but 
if it's a financial firm, we're dealing typically with like Airtable or Smartsheet, right? If you're going on the more marketing and creative side of things, we're, de we're definitely bumping into Asana. If it's workflow management, we're definitely bumping into Monday and Jira pretty consistently. So hyper competitive, very complex sales cycles for the sales reps. It's just a wide, we have a wide uh, surface space with the value props that we can bring to the table. And there's just a lot of competitors in all those subcategories that I mentioned. What does a sales rep look like who's successful in this environment? Because you mentioned the task management tools you compete with, but I think you guys also compete with basically every other category of productivity <laughs> yeah. software as I click through the uh, the website, like which seems like a challenging place for a sales rep to, to play and to know how to compete and what type of discovery questions to answer, to ask. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. What, what have you seen from the reps that have been successful navigating that and also navigating all, all the growth you guys have seen in the last couple of years? Yeah, I would say that we as a business going from five reps to 150 reps plus in, in three GOs, three continents, a lot of change, right? Pretty standard there, like chaotic yep. level of change across the board. So the ones that are consistently on top are the most agile, the most flexible people that are hungry go getters, but can can manage and process change very effectively um, yep. and sort of just jump into change like, you know, as the Navy SEALs say you got to embrace the suck. They go right at it. They'll go right at the change. They're not going to wait. You know, they're going to raise their hand and say that I'll be the first to try this. I'll be the first to give this a go. And they kind of dive right in. And that's, we have that sort of go get, go get a mentality internally within the sales culture as a whole. And I think the people that are sort of selling on their toes like that and not their heels are usually the ones that um, start to generate pipeline and generate revenue very quickly when we add a playbook or we change our pricing or we change the way that we um, convert our subscriptions. People that go after it hard are usually the ones that figure it out quickest and they stay on top. Kenny, is there any part of your, uh, sorry, to, um, is there any part of your interview process uh, at ClickUp that you think is unique and you know you will want to take no matter where you go and you think founders and early sales hires would be crazy not to do when they're hiring? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, what I learned around the hiring process here at, at ClickUp um, we definitely figured out a very uh, fast process. So obviously traditional hiring can take four to five weeks. A fast, you know, sub fast would be like three weeks. We definitely were doing five, six interviews, including like a project in like a week and a half, two weeks. So a couple of smart things that we picked up on was over indexing on recruiting coordinators as opposed to recruiters. So recruiting coordinators can keep the machine moving, keep the candidates warm, coordinate the hmm. calendars. It's a low cost, easy to hire for role. And they're, if you, if, you know, we were doing like three coordinators for every one recruiter. Uh, we wanted the recruiters to stay focused on the sourcing aspect and the, and the initial screening um, to make sure the pipeline was, was, um, was healthy and it was packed with good candidates. The, recruit, the recruiting coordinators basically were the lifeblood keeping that. I mean, we're talking coordinating 12 calendars, you know, in like wow. a 10-day like timeline, you know what I mean? It was it was pretty aggressive in that regard. Other than that, obviously, we, we rely heavily on um, on background checks, or not background checks, I'm sorry, uh, refer references. Uh, re re references are a must-have. You, you have to call references. We had many candidates that interviewed extremely well, and we could not find a positive reference. We had other people that interviewed pretty good, that we thought were pretty good, and the references were executives at big companies and we're like this guy is amazing or this person's amazing and you so back references those, are right very, yeah we back channeled aggressively on every single candidate as opposed to hey cherry pick your top two references i'll call them it'll be amazing and yep. you'll be hired it was 
it, it's the motion of, okay, let's make sure we back channel. That, that's, I think, a big like venture investing motion that, that yep. Kraft really believes in is like, you got to back channel and really find what actual people who are in this orbit say. So it's, it's cool that you guys built this very intentional recruiting machine where this level, this commitment to research and back channeling was so prioritized. Yep. And then outside of that, the other thing I really liked what we did is we had a very clean scoring system because there's obviously inherent bias in everyone's decision. Um, so we really tried to make a standardized scoring process that had clear guidelines. So for example, one of the guidelines was like, if we're on the fence, then we automatically say no. Like that mm -hmm. just cuts out the deliberation of it. Like we just like, if, if all of us are sitting on the phone, we're kind of like, yeah, I'm not sure. I think so. We immediately can pick up that we're on the fence. We immediately just cut the candidate and move to the next. So we just had a clean scoring system, clear guidelines, and that really helped to keep the machine moving. So where did that come from? Because I think a lot of early stage startups, this need, I, I guess it, it comes from need, right? Like most early stage startups aren't hiring this fast. So you don't urgently need to build a machine. Mm -hmm. Did the realization to build this type of recruiting machine come from kind of a, a bottom-up planning process? Like, okay, our goals are insane. To hit those goals, we need insane headcount growth. To have insane headcount growth and not make mistakes, we need a process. Like, was it organic like that? And and who drove it, just out of curiosity? It was it was myself, and it was Matt Bauman, and then and Tommy Wang. And that was probably around February, March of 2021. So I'd been there just almost a year. Matt had been there like four months. Tommy started about two months before me. And we were the only three sales leaders that were there at that point. Um, and it came because we noticed that we were having circular conversations like about discretionary feedback, right? Oh, I like this and I like that. And sort of, it takes a lot of time to come to a conclusion when everyone's sort of just vomiting like what they like and what they don't like about the candidate. So we wanted to standardize the scoring with each candidate to make it much more clean, much more precise, and we can make better, smarter decisions faster. Um. Uh, changing up a, a little bit before we got on, we were talking about the fact that there's so much content about product led growth, about the data models, about the lead scoring, about the tooling. But, but Kenny mentioned that there's actually not a lot of content out there about product led sales, about selling at these types of companies. Um, but we didn't get a chance to dive into it further. So Kenny, if you don't mind, I'd love to just get your take on, on how this type of sale is different than what you've seen other companies you've worked at. And if there was a lot of content about selling out product-led companies, like what would that be about? Like what, what are the, the interesting things uh, that, that come to mind? Yeah, I could definitely talk about this topic for hours. So I'm going to do my absolute best to, huh. <laughs> to keep it brief and succinct so you guys can get more questions. But I have the benefit of seeing this motion from two angles, right? I was at Yammer in 2008 when there were 20 employees. It was brand new at the time. It was called freemium. It was called um, bottoms up selling. Now it's called PLG, PLS, all the terminology change, but a lot of the same hallmarks are there. Um, so I've seen it as a rep, um, an early stage uh, freemium company that was right on the forefront of, the, of, of the, this whole methodology. And I've also seen it from a leadership perspective and sort of like a, a at scale perspective. So um, Yammer was really interesting in the sense that we had a, we had a very visionary VP of sales at the time, Travis Vanderzade, who's now the more known as the head of Bird Scooters, founder of Bird Scooters. And he was like, we should create an interface for these reps to go in and look at all of these users and they can figure out who can, who they can target and stuff like that. So as a seller, what I noticed, um, with this bottoms up selling motion 
is it's definitely very value driven. It's customer centric, value driven. Um, you know, you're building use cases, you're creating value realization with the customers. All of this happens well before you even begin the sales motion. And so you have to you have to approach it from that perspective. You need patience. You need to understand that you're going to be um, working with a wide variety of users and and decision makers and non decision makers, and that you need to the, the basically the experience and value within the platform is basically at the tip of the spear of the deal cycle versus, um, you know, traditionally where companies have to go cross the chasm per se, and they have to basically purchase a solution with the hopes that it's going to work. Um, what, what, like what topic do you guys want me to cover specifically about this? I could, I could go for hours about this. So I guess I, I suspect the thing that I always tell people when they're talking about like product led sales is like product led sales is just sales. It's, the the bottom up motion gives you the lead gives you the indication that something might be here like there mm -hmm. might be something to sell to someone in need mm -hmm. but i feel like it just turns into the best sellers can sell those deals the most effectively and the ones who just sort of allow the prospect to bring them, their momentum aren't mm -hmm. going to be successful and the ones who really take the bull by the horns and drive the process even though it's mm -hmm. inbound or based on a warm lead or whatever are successful. So I guess what are kind of the differences you've noticed between, you know, non bottom up sales and bottom up sales or sales at ClickUp? Like how, how are those motions different or similar in your view? Yeah. So they're, they're very similar at ClickUp um, because we do have a free version of our product. So whether we're in a formal bottoms up motion or we're in a tops down motion, typically our customers, they, they have access to the platform. They can partially deploy it within the company, whether that be one or two people, or they want to roll it out to 10 people to test it out. So having good product knowledge uh, and understanding how the product can actually drive the sales cycle is inherent in both of the different sales methodologies. I think the difference for the difference for ClickUp versus a traditional bottoms up selling motion and a tops down motion with us is that um, most of the sellers have to get involved with the customer and help them structure the deployment of the solution on the, on the upfront. So, they need to help them define what their objectives are as a user, as a group, as an organization. And they need to build that out, whether it be a use case, a feature function, an integration. They need to get on the get on the phone with them and start to work through some of those value points where usually if there's a tops down motion and the customer's testing the solution on the side, we actually try to limit their usage of the platform a little bit because we don't want it to um, negatively affect the uh, timeline of the deal cycle. So even though we have product knowledge and we try to make sure they understand how to get value from it, we try to keep the focus for the customer on the tops down selling motion. So going from demo to demo, going to security review, legal review, good stuff like that. Well, one aspect of this motion I'd love to hear from you is the ROI piece, right? I imagine that uh, there is a good amount of change management that's gonna be required in any of these cycles. You're asking your customers to stop using Asana for something or to stop using Notion for something else. So with, with all things productivity, uh, creating ROI can be pretty challenging. I've always felt like it was a little fluffy and I'm having to like really uh, get as creative as possible to, to make a compelling business case. So mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from um, the reps who are crushing it at ClickUp, uh, like what are they doing to, to demonstrate that kind of ROI and make a case? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, it just depends on the, on the challenges that the customer have. We do have a set of you know, we have a set of use cases that are value driven that are pretty consistent across the board, but it's also partnering with the customer and coming up with custom solutions that, that, that fit their need. 
I think that the, the reps that are crushing it, um, they know how to harness the power of the platform in the sense that, I think I mentioned this before, but one of the main features of ClickUp is its customization, its flexibility, like the ability to like malleate it around, around a business or a problem. And so the, the, the reps that are driving the most value with their customers, they know how to kind of retool, reconfigure the solution around very specific um, problems or challenges. So for example, we were recently working with a publishing company, obviously I'm not gonna name the customer, um, and they're working with authors. They're working with like authors and how, teaching them how to write a book and like how to publish their own work. And it's like a workshop that they go through. So ClickUp obviously at its core, it isn't specifically designed to like work with authors or like a person management solution, but we are able to customize the solution so that they could actually bring their author users through sort of a, a pipeline of experience where they start as guests and then they work into full members and they get access to different types of um, content that helps to drive um, adoption around that content when they're using ClickUp. It's a really unique use case. Um, and, and they had talked to most of our competitors and most of the competitors just couldn't, they couldn't work with that particular business model, but ClickUp through, like I said, just through some configurations and some integrations, <laughs> we're able to basically build like a, like a user management system for them. That, that's super interesting. And it, it sounds like from everything you've told us, a, a, a rapid ClickUp being able to really understand, navigate and customize the platform is really yeah. highly correlated with success. I, I'm curious, like how you guys think about um, what to focus on on one-on-ones and sales training, like the, the, the use cases and product knowledge versus like sales skills. Um, mm -hmm. Like how, how do you weigh which of those is more important um, uh, in what you can kind of help uh, uh, improve in, in, in the rep skill sets? Yeah, it's a good question. I think at least the way that we do it here could be different yep. at other places. It's it's a wheelhouse of content, right? It's a wheelhouse. So we might do a few weeks where we're focusing on upskilling yep. um, and focusing on sales methodology or doing, you know, practice runs with disco sessions or demo calls. Other weeks, um, it could just be more competitive intelligence. It could be um, just around product knowledge or platform knowledge. So it's definitely like a healthy wheelhouse of all the different topics. And it's really just dependent upon the performance of the team. So if pipeline is lagging one month, then we'll probably spend all of our enablement sessions on pipe generation and disco sessions and you know how to how to sort through all the different PQLs and which ones to target. If you know maybe our close rate is down the next month, we probably focus on negotiations and, and competitive intel with regards to losing deals to Asana on the back end. So yeah. it really just depends on the needs of the sales team, but it's it's definitely like a, a broad wheelhouse of different topics. Hey Kenny, how does your uh, lead composition breakdown. I'm assuming it changed a lot over time, but between warm, outbound, inbound, like PQL inbound, mm -hmm. cold outbound. I, I don't know if I named every permutation of possible lead, but what is kind of the, the <laughs> breakdown at this point? I'm assuming most come kind of like warm outbound, like fr like going out into the install base, but just curious to mm -hmm. gut check on that. Yeah, so the heartbeat of our lead flow is definitely the flywheel. So definitely just generating inbound leads. And you're right, we take those uh, inbound PQLs and we basically turn them into warm outbound PQLs. So it's kind of like a work the account, not the lead strategy. So if you get, you know, if the janitor from Walmart signs up, don't just work that one lead. Start calling all the executives at Walmart and see if you can get some, get some conversations going. Um, we do have an outbound sales team, just a just a pure cold outbound team. 
Uh, but a majority of the sales reps, I think about 85% of them are on the inbound sales team dealing with MQLs, uh, enterprise quote forms, uh, inbound PQLs and signups. Um, so definitely that, that wide variety of, uh, of the flywheel model. So you have a separate outbound team, it sounds like. And I'm just curious, Correct. is that like SEAL Team 6 or do you graduate off of outbound? Do you graduate to outbound from inbound? I would not, I mean, outbound is a diff, more difficult job than selling inbound, but yeah. how, do, how are the dynamics of that outbound team at, at ClickUp? Yeah, so we have a great outbound team. It's definitely, um, it's part of the commercial team, which is where the inbound team lives, but they're sort of their own team. They have their own leveling and structuring. It's not as though people that go from like inbound mid-market will go to outbound for a little bit and then come back for like inbound enterprise. <laughs> so they're just more of their uh, own individual team with their own leveling, but they target, they've got a few individuals for, for each segment. So the outbound team's got three or four people more uh, SMB, which we call growth, uh, mid-market, which we call majors, and then enterprise and strategic. Um, I think that team is a total of like 10 to 12 people. So it's not a huge team, um, but that's, uh, it's a pure outbound play, right? It's target account lists, partnering with B with BDR org that supports the outbound team. And it's really, um, it's cold outbound, but it's also trying to leverage the free version of the platform to generate a sign up and a branded experience around our product. And then you can kind of warm those PQLs up into, into opportunities sometimes. And Kenny, can you talk about the history of, of how it evolved that way? I think there are so many companies that are, they want to start figuring outbound. They kind of have a couple of the reps try it on the side and companies end up in this we're figuring out outbound stage for three or four years. Sometimes it sounds like you guys got to a place where like outbound must be working because you have a handful of reps staffed on it. Like how did that, how did that happen? To be honest with you, we were just looking at the org or the structure of the organization. And we were, um, the conversation came up is like, do we want to really put all of our eggs in the, in the flywheel basket? Like is, is really inbound the only thing we can do? We raised some pretty sizable rounds of funding. So we were able to build really whatever we wanted. And we were like, we should definitely have an outbound team present to see how that functions, how that does, right? We want to see the success and see if it makes sense for certain segments, for certain geos. So, of course, we would want to prop that up and operate that in parallel with our, our main revenue machine, which is the inbound flywheel model. So yeah. it was more about, like, why wouldn't we do it? Like, you know, we've got the capital, we've got the time, we could definitely can find eight, eight players. Like, why yeah. wouldn't we run that in parallel type of thing? And obviously, the priority for the business has always been enterprise, getting into enterprise. And so outbound actually can be an effective way to break open the enterprise as opposed to expecting executives of Fortune 100 companies to sign up for a free solution. <laughs> like That's pretty hard to do. That's, that's one of the hardest parts with the inbound model is getting executives of Fortune 100s to come inbound. So an outbound motion actually makes a lot more sense when you're executing an enterprise. Yeah, the CCIO of Walmart's probably not going to be coming through yeah, on the website. Yeah, um, with a with a budget, we don't want that. And like that's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah <so>. exactly. <laughs> Medic is already completed uh, in the in the questionnaire. Um, I don't know how, how, how close you are to that outbound team, but I'm curious, um, maybe what the difference was in the DNA hiring profile and building out that team versus some of the other folks that you were bringing on across inbound. Yeah, so what I noticed, this was a little bit new to me, is that outbound reps like outbound, a lot of them. There are definitely sales reps that are like, we talk to them and they're great reps. And we're like, what would you rather do? And they're like, dude, outbound all the way. I definitely want to be outbound. I want to be dialing. I want to be cold emailing. I want to BDR. Like, there are people that just are, are bred for it. They want it. 
So we, um, and they even put that like on their LinkedIn or their resume, they're like, you know, top outbound rep, like people just really, there's just people that really, really want it. I think that obviously it's an activity based job. You definitely have to have like regiment structure, clear cadence on how you're going to generate enough activities to produce the pipeline that you need to hit your number. So we're looking for people that were highly regimented, people that were focused, that were driven, that had achieved high level of success or mastery at something else, like building a structure to the point of to the point of mastery. So we were looking for those types of individuals when we were when we were hunting for outbound reps. And of course, we hired um, a phenomenal leader for the team, Joey Wood, and he already had a pretty good Rolodex of individuals that were top performers at other great startups from an outbound motion perspective. What are the strategies that your best outbound reps use to succeed? Are they really good at customization? Are they just animals on, uh, and I mean that lovingly, that was, that was a term that if you got called an animal as an outbound rep, that's a huge compliment. So are they just yeah. like tearing up the phones? Um, is it acti- people who can produce most activities? Is it people who can put people in the most drip campaigns? What are the tactics that you see in your top outbound AEs? Yeah. So what I see is people um, that are very good at cross-selling while getting multi-threaded and can definitely know how to bring together like value points and use cases from across multiple lines of business into clear business case or like um, value proposition to executives. So if you're doing a cold outbound, you're likely talking to one or two departments, you know, you're scoping out, you're doing demos, you're saying, this is your use case. This is why this product would be super valuable for you. They're able to string those value props across lines of business into like a very clean business case. So they know the right person to reach out to and based on who you are and based on the product you already have, here's what I think you should check out and here's what I think you'd benefit by. So it's like very clear persona to pain matching and and they're targeting the right people to do that, right? Because most outbound reps are really good at cracking open account, like getting getting that one person on the phone that's like, yeah, we are actually evaluating this. We'd love to talk with you. But the ones that really crush it take that one decision maker contact that they cracked open and they find three more in the organization and they build a broader use case. Yeah. So that's like basically getting three deals in one or four deals in one. So people that can get multi-threaded cross sell and drive multifunctional business cases are, are usually the most effective outbound. How does that crescendo? Like if you are multi-threading and you find, you crack that open, find one person who's interested, turn that into four or five people. Does that result in a deck that they're putting together for a decision maker that they leverage those four people to get a meeting with and they've put a deck together that, you know, talks about the research they've done with all the people they've talked to. Like, how does that crescendo at the end towards a, a buying decision typically? Yeah, we're, we're a well-staffed company now. So we have a product marketing team that helps us build these really great looking, you know, quotes with all these ROI calculators and all this, all this great stuff. Um, so it definitely comes down to just talking about their existing costs, doing a financial analysis, a financial audit of what they're paying for the status quo, and then areas of value that we can bring to the table, whether that be, you know, increased revenue or decreased costs in some way, shape or form or more time in the day. And then we sort of consolidate that on the back end and we align it to our costs and show them that it's, it's a net positive for you guys know how you'd slice it and dice it. But in the early days, and what we did at Yammer was definitely more of like a use case catalog type of approach where it was more discretionary feedback, like these are the issues in HR, these are the issues in finance, you know, this is how we would approach this from a use case, like more um, more content driven as opposed to metrics driven, which is what we have now at, at ClickUp. Hey, Kenny, you've been um, at a, a 
a handful of companies, but but two that stand out to me, um, Yammer and ClickUp, that went through this incredible kind of growth trajectory and, and you were there relatively early. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have to a founder of a company like those, but but also very early where they've got their tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of users, maybe on small team plans, and they're looking to, to layer on a sales worker. How do they know when it's time to go and hire a handful of sellers and, and start trying to kind of add the top down to the, the, the bottoms up thing they build? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very tough question to answer, to be completely honest with you. I think that those first two and three sales hires for a new founder with a young company, it's a big risk. It's a gamble. Nine out of 10 times, like the companies I've worked with in the past, usually the founders are either from the product or the engineering side of the house. It's very confusing to them, like what a sales rep does, how do you compensate them, like when when's the right time? I think what I've seen in the past is that your customers will basically tell you. So one thing that we look at in a PLG motion is hand raisers, right? People that raise their hand, like I want to talk to you about a subscription. You'll see hand raisers start to tick upwards for people that are like, listen, I want to buy on for a year or I want to buy on for two years. I'm looking to save some cost here because I got to roll this out to 100 people. You start to see a lot of hand raisers that, that want deals and they want discounts. That's usually a, a pretty strong inclination. Or you're basically your target market or your TAM or whoever is actually using your product is from a larger segment. So if you just happen to build a product that's really great with mid-market companies and it's all mid-market signups, you probably need to get a sales team in there sooner or later. For sales reps, it's... Um, you know, what I usually target when I hire that first sales rep or I hire like basically like an early head of sales, that's going to be a multifunctional individual is definitely somebody who's either like a sales manager that's moving into a director title at a bigger company or a top enterprise rep who's moving into management. You want people who are hungry, that are looking for that opportunity, that experience. They want to build the systems, the tech stack. They want to they want to streamline the data and the forecasting and everything. You want for somebody who's hungry to jump into that type of a, a multifaceted role. So um, that's usually the people that I recommend that startups go after. Somebody who's just not afraid to wear seven hats and just build this thing from the ground up. Kenny, how are you doing on time? Do you have five minutes to go over or hard stop? Yeah, Classic I can go five minutes question. over. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I am extremely compelled by is Zeb and Tommy's commitment to uh, – like the enterprise product market fit as opposed to end user product market fit. I mm-hmm. think they're very, uh, I'm trying to think of a better word. The, the word is aggressive. They're, they're aggressively seeking ways to sell bigger deals to more types of companies. Mm-hmm. And I think like back in, in companies that I've worked for, I wish Dropbox would have been as aggressive at what are the enterprise features we can build so that a decision maker buys this and is really excited by all the functionality they can get. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess, is that just like inherent in founder DNA? How, how do you, how would you advise a founder that's running a bottom-up company that isn't necessarily mm-hmm. clued in mentally to, oh, we got to build features for decision makers. How do yep. you click up? How did you see ClickUp approach that over the, the last, you know, 12 to 24 months? Yeah, so... You said a couple of things in there. You said building features for decision makers and going into the enterprise. Those are two different things. Um, but I think for us, um, we've actually been very slow and methodical about the way we go about enterprise. And we only hired, I think, two enterprise reps in 2021. And then this year, we're, we're definitely scaling it out to try to get into it a little bit more. What I usually tell founders at the enterprise space is 
unless you happen to build a very unique product that's just like perfect for the enterprise, it's going to be very costly and execution can take years. And it's not something that you should just rush into. It's better to better to, 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 to build up consistent, predictable revenue in the SMB space first or the mid-market space first and sort of approach it from very methodically. Um, for us, as we're building this motion out, you know, we're listening to customers. We're building a customer advisory board. We are, you know, we have a competitive intelligence team that goes after all of our largest deals. And they call the company and they're like, we want to talk to all your executive. Like, why did you choose the, why did you choose ClickUp? What features do you want? So we have very efficient feedback loops with um, people that we think um, represent our potential ICPs in that in that enterprise space. Um, so yeah, I think that's the most part what we're really focusing on. We're seeing what the competitors are building. We're listening to our customers, and then we're really just very methodically kind of getting into it. I don't think we're targeting it from a vertical perspective. We're not targeting it from a company size. It's really kind of like who comes to us and who fits the bill first, and then sort of mailing into the solution around that. And Kenny, do you have any words of wisdom for founders on bringing that feedback loop to product? Because one of the things that Mark was alluding to, and uh, we can all relate to this from time at Dropbox, was that it felt like that wasn't necessarily there. Um, and if it was, it wasn't acted on. So I'm curious, like when you think about iterating and like what's going to be important to build on the roadmap, essentially what you all are hearing in the field, what does that look like in terms of yep. uh, connecting the uh, feedback loop to product? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in the early days, it's really on uh, the founder for the most part, because usually the founders, um, most of the founders I've worked with, like I said, are product or engineering. There are definitely business founders, but they're a little bit less common. If if it's a product or an engineering background founder, then they should be the ones on the phone talking with the customers, with the sales reps, and trying to actually hear directly from the customers. Or there should be somebody who's sort of assigned to that it makes an effort to connect with your top 20 customers all the time like every quarter to get feedback at this point you know as we scale the business it's definitely a competitive intelligence team there's a product feedback team there's also a customer champion team that regularly connects with c-levels and vps and some of our largest customers and they're synthesizing that and they, and they meet monthly to bring all that feedback together and try to create some real nuggets for the product team that they can actually build on so we, I know we're running out of time. I have a question I have to ask you. It's about when you have a 150 plus person sales org, how do you make sure that the newer people of the org have a territory and a patch that they can be successful in? I think that'd be my fear in joining a really big, fast growing sales org is like, is there going to be any territory for me to sell into? How do you plan for that? How, how does that all work? I know it's too much for four minutes, but like what's kind of your guiding principles on you know, leaving territory for new sellers. We haven't done territories yet. We have it at a, at, a, at a basic level. Like we've got North America, EMEA, APAC. We've got some basic geos out there. Um, and then we scaled headcount to lead flow, right? So we basically figure out, you know, average deal size for particular lead types, how many of those they get per month, uh, con times conversion rate. We start to figure out exactly how many leads a rep would need to succeed here. And then of course, we're moving up to top of funnel and we're throwing money on top of funnel and see if we can actually increase or decrease lead counts, quality of leads, stuff like that. That's the way that we're kind of focusing on it is it, can we scale leads enough to hire more heads? So it's round robin essentially still. It's a round robin by, by um, sorry, round robin by segment. So if you're, uh, if you're an SMB rep in North America, there's like 30 of them. They're all part of the same round robin system for- And the round robin, in North America. those leads could be generated by a hand raiser, but they could be generated by a layer of 
Correct. essentially SDRs who are trying to go out into the the install base and find people who want to talk to a seller. Is that yeah. how it works? Yeah. So it'd be like, you know, how many SDR passes do they get? How many MQLs do they get? How many PQLs do they get? And again, average deal size of those leads times conversion rate. We start to piece together what the composition of their number looks like on a month to month basis. And then, of course, we're trying to throw money to increase, say, MQLs month over month. And if we can actually get that to work, then we start to justify the budget for additional headcount. We haven't gotten to the point to where people own states or parse, you know, zip codes and stuff like that. We're not quite there yet. So that's pretty incredible, though. You guys have been able to scale inbound and, and kind of PQL demand to, to feed 150 reps. That's that's fantastic. That's what I tell people. Like we're, um, I talk to other companies and they're like, well, we've got this inbound lead flow. Should we do an outbound? I said, dude, if you've got an inbound flow that's working, it's very delicate. Like take good care of that. <laughs> Cause those, I yeah, love it. those are low CAC leads right there. Like you got to keep those. <laughs> those are important. Kenny, I want to give you your day back, but thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I think, uh, I try to, we try to like edit this podcast live as we record it. So I think, Maybe what we should do is have you drop. I know you got a day, Mike and Ryan. Maybe we should wrap up with some kind of parting thoughts, and then we'll conclude the episode. Does that sound good to everyone? Yeah. Cool. That sounds okay. good. Thanks, Thanks so much, Kenny. Me. I learned a ton. Appreciate your time. Yeah, Kenny, cool. that was amazing. And people can't see it, uh, but the Hawaiian shirt is giving me all sorts of inspiration. ClickUp so has an incredible shirt game. That's just another reason to join <laughs> ClickUp. Nothing else. Incredible shirts. That's right. Cool. Well, I really appreciate you guys' time. I really appreciate you guys inviting me to this. Thanks, Thanks again. Cool. Thanks for Thanks, coming. Thanks, guys. Bye. See ya. Wow, what a journey. I mean, to go from five sellers to 150 plus sellers, it still fills me with a little bit of anxiety. That's crazy that they've done it so gracefully. Yeah, the fact that they've scaled inbound demand and pqls to feed a team that large and they've been thoughtful enough to not hire ahead of of demand uh is really impressive that that's that's uh, fantastic for clickup so heller i know ryan is going to need to drop in a little bit but any distillations any takeaways from the conversation with kenny that you think desire deserve some special attention or call out um you know, I, I think the, the the journey was was super interesting. Um, that 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 he walked us through. Um, I, I liked the 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 fact that when he joined, there was there was so much to do. He had to to work eight hundred hours a week. But even doing that, he had to figure out where to focus. And given they already had reps in seat doing relatively well, he focused on on building systems that could allow them to continue scaling. Uh, that seemed like a, a really probably challenging decision to make to yeah. not focus on on coaching in those early days, but probably one that unlocked a ton of future growth for the company. So like his ability and the team's ability to, to focus on the thing that had to focus on given it's a crazy startup going through this hyperscale um, was, was interesting and I think a valuable takeaway uh, for me. What about you, Mike? I loved when he said embrace the the suck the navy seals phrase yeah. like so much of thriving in a startup is being positive and just accepting that there's going to be so many painful moments along the way and just like embracing them and kenny's such a positive person i think that's that made him such a good fit for a, a company going through all these kinds of like 
just just not even growth issues, but just like growth inevitabilities. When you're growing that fast, there's just things that you have to figure out. So that was a big takeaway for me is like hiring for profiles of people that uh, can stay positive and can embrace the stuff that isn't fun. I think that was something that I wasn't fully thinking about heading into this episode. He also, and I'm going to have to jump in a minute, but I like that he nailed it uh, as transparently as possible that it is a grind, right? I think he was saying that he was doing between 80 and 100 hours a week uh, when he first got there. So it's, uh, I know it can seem uh, like, the shiny new thing and, and people want to get there early. But I think you also have to go in with the understanding that there's a lot of shit to, to do when you, when you first get started uh, and be realistic about what the time commitment is and knowing that it is not going to be uh, smooth sailing. Uh, totally. Jump. Totally. Lips, yeah. I know you got to hop. I'm trying to think of if Heller and I have any other, there's so much in there. It's so rich to break it down. Yeah. You know, one question I had that I, I didn't get to ask him by, by, uh, by Lipster. See you guys. Um, which kind of uh, 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 follows up on the embrace the suck for the rep, but also you mentioned for the, the first sales leader, if you're a founder, hire someone who's maybe an enterprise AE and wants to work their way up or a manager who wants to be a director. So also somebody on this upward trajectory where they're yeah. willing to, to grind and, and probably deal with some, some bullshit that just comes with uh, early stage life. I, I, I don't know, like, how do you think about like testing for that? Like when you're advising portfolio, um, founders or portfolio heads of sales, what, what questions do you ask in an interview or does it all come from back channel to, to figure so out hard. whether a rep has that, that like grind quotient? Here's what's really hard. I used to fancy myself like an expert on sales interviews, but I've realized the landscape has changed so much because there's just so many more positions available, so many more sales jobs. The war for talent has intensified so much. So part of my kind of own interviewing secret sauce was just to have a really high bar and like figure out ways to poke and prod in a respectful way, of course, in an interview where you can get to deeper and deeper truths about the person. But if you're that picky in today's hiring environment, you won't hire anyone, you know? So I think that, I think that equation does need to change. And I guess, I mean, it depends on the role that you're hiring for, but the thing that I keep coming back to is, there's just no substitute for like, it's kind of a combination of like raw intelligence meets like common sense, you know, like you don't have to be the smartest person as long as you have a lot, you're practical and have a lot of common sense um, and, and vice versa. But it's sort of like on that continuum, like you, you need to be talking to someone who's like based in reality, highly motivated, wants to succeed. Back. I think all of that is the type of person you need to hire if you can't get an Ivy League resume every time. Yeah, that 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 makes uh, a lot of sense. Um, is there anything else we should cover? Should we talk about our, I, our crypto losses, or is it time to wrap up the pod? I think maybe that that requires a separate podcast. <laughs> um, I guess the other thing that was interesting, hearing him break down how they have a separate outbound team was really interesting. I think my distillation of that is it's really hard to ask people who have access to both inbound and outbound to focus on outbound because it's such a harder, different motion. So I thought it was really smart that they have a separate team that's fully focused on uh, feeding themselves via outbound. Yeah, yeah, that was um, super impressive. And it, it shows how much they're investing in not just like this quarter's revenue number, but the, the, the foundations they need to hit bigger goals in the years ahead.
And actually, I think it's from what I've seen, like, um, uh, uh, selling to a new channel is just hard. Uh, if you're used to, like, the, the dynamics of an inbound deal with its own sense of urgency, flipping and also selling an outbound one is just going to be hard. Um, it's incredibly if hard. Yeah, if you're, if you're doing both. And I think the same could be said about selling to inbound versus users who may understand the product but also not have a higher level need to go solve. So, yeah, the, the, the amount of thoughtfulness an org puts into having somebody or some group specifically focus on unlocking this new channel or this new motion before scaling it widely is is awesome. And I mean, they, they I imagine took probably really strong sellers off of inbound and put them on outbound, which is a, yeah. a massive investment because the, yeah, the costs are really high. The opportunity yeah, totally. Costs totally. The other thing, the other final thing to call out is like, I was really impressed by their commitment to building a machine around recruiting. And again, we saw a very similar thing at Dropbox. We saw, you know, OJ, I feel like was the spearhead of that process when we kind of flipped into hyper growth mode. And I remember him taking strong sellers off of selling and moved them into recruiting because his conclusion was recruiting is the most important thing we can do. It's our rate limiting factor for growth. So they realized that early on and just devoted an entire motion to, you know, building a recruiting machine. Yeah. And, you know, OJ, who's the, the CRO of Asana now, is a great salesperson because he convinced some of the best sellers uh, to, to switch functions for, for a few quarters. Um, yeah. But, but to- totally right. Uh, that had a big impact on um, probably all of us uh, uh, joining um, and kind of understanding the opportunity there. Definitely. Well, Mike, should we wrap it? I think unless there are any major burning conclusions from that conversation, we'll put a bow on it. But anything else come to mind? I, I think that's it. Yeah, that was uh, that was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed the conversation and, and learned a ton from uh, from from all of Kenny's answers. Uh, yeah, that was that was fantastic, Mike. Well, thanks for uh, joining everyone. That was Kenny Vincent, uh, director of sales at ClickUp, along with the uh, bottom up sales crew, myself. Uh, Mike Heller and Ryan Libster, and we'll try to do another one of these very soon. And thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. See you, everyone.